All right. Good morning, Emmanuel. I want to begin. Um, today is just a, a really special day um, in a lot of ways. So uh, this is the first time that I've preached since 2012. So I've got a lot of jitters. Uh, I've got my big cup of caffeine here. So um, a little bit nervous. Uh, 2012 was a long time ago, in case you didn't know that. So 2012, Tim Tebow was still a quarterback. So that, I mean, long time ago. And uh, so Kesha actually wrote music. Nobody knows who that is except this group over here. So let me, maybe I can appeal to a broader audience. Barack Obama was just elected for his second term in office. So now everybody else is familiar. 2012, a long time ago. So I joked with uh, Pastor Jason. I told him that this morning's message may be a lot like Tim Tebow's first at bat in the minor leagues. It may be ugly, or it may be like him playing quarterback. Who makes fun of Tim Tebow in church, right? That's me. That's what you're going to get this morning. So um, I'm just thankful to be here. Uh, really thankful for the opportunity to, to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, indeed, it, it really is a special day for me. We have a lot of uh, visitors here to Emmanuel, but people who are near and dear to my heart. So in this row here, one, two, three, four, back, um, this is a, a remnant of my church in Grafton, uh, Redemption Hill. Uh, the other remnant is actually here at Emmanuel now, which is really cool. Um, so back in 2012, when we had to disassemble our church, um, we had to shut the doors, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, this morning. But I, I got up, and I remember my last sermon was, you know, we're going to take a little hiatus. Um, we're going to close the church. I'm going to be gone for a year. I'm going to get this thing figured out, uh, deal with my heart, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to do it again. And uh, so one year turned into five years, so I had a lot of stuff going on in my heart. And then here we are at Emmanuel. So I, Jason is here. Jeff was uh, Jeff and Jason were my worship leaders. They're doing a tremendous job here. Um, and then uh, and it's just exciting. It's amazing what God does. We never would have thought five years from now we would be back together. And here we are at Emmanuel. I, I also need to just a word of, of uh, just maybe to qualify that we didn't plan on this. So we're not trying to like take over Emmanuel. I was as shocked as you are when they came. Um, I looked up one day, and there was Adam Felder, who I knew Adam Felder, and uh, we did breakfast for a long time together, but Adam was at FBC. Uh, Jason was at FBC. Uh, Jeff went to a different place, so we were we were scattered. We didn't really plan on this, so we're not here to usurp or take over Emmanuel. Uh, we're just delighted that you would have us and that we can worship God here. We are so excited by what God is doing in this church. Um, the first time that I walked in, you were so welcoming, and, and just I felt immediately like I was at home. And Jeremy had talked about a lot of the new ministries that are going on out on the streets, preaching the gospel. Um, it, it's just exciting, and it's it's exciting time uh, to be here. I also went to school here. I don't know if you guys know that or not. I, it wasn't a long time. It was actually like for four months, and then I realized Christian education wasn't for me. Um, so I, I moved to back to a public school. Uh, but I remember in that time, I, I gave Pastor McBride a lot of the gray hair that he has now. Um, he would come out of his office, and I would play just lighthearted jokes on him, like putting wet floor signs throughout the sanctuary, just to make him think the roof was leaking again, and just little things that he I know he really appreciates. Um, something else that he would appreciate, and those of you that are in contact with him can tell him, I showed up this time. So I was scheduled to preach chapel at Emmanuel when I was here, 
Uh, I wanted to be a preacher, um, love sharing the word of God. I was up all night long trying to figure out what I was going to tell my fellow peers, students, and uh, I just decided I was going to check out, not show up at all. <laughs> um, so Pastor McBride, really great guy, lots of joy, always smiling, funny jokes. I don't know if you know this, he has a very angry side too. And it's ugly, and you don't ever want to see it. And I saw it that day in his office when I came back to school the next day. So those of you who know Pastor McBride, tell him I showed up this time. So I'm already doing infinitely better than I did the first time. We're going to look at Micah chapter number 6, or chapter number 7 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Micah chapter number 7. While you're turning, another reason that it's a special day for me is I have my family here with me, and uh, and that's something that I, I've always treasured. But uh, my son, I, I was gonna, that was like the most special part, but I see he bailed on me. <laughs> so E Kids is a lot more interesting than Dad. But uh, I will tell you that my son was with me this morning, and uh, he was over my back with me as I was looking at the Word of God, and I was explaining to him what I was going to preach on today, and that was that was the most special part of today. I'm going to tell you a little, bit, a little story about the Pittsburgh Penguins. So the Pens are uh, doing really well this year. Uh, they're in the Stanley Cup. They did, had a really bad night last night, but they're going to come back. They're going to rise again. Uh, we'll get there. But uh, the Pens, so back a long time ago, late 90s, Mario Lemieux. Everybody knows who Mario Lemieux is. Greatest hockey player of all time, number 66. Mario Lemieux decided in his prime to hang it up and call it quits. And so he had just had a child who was born. The, the child was uh, very sick when he was born. He was in the intensive care unit for a long time. And uh, Mario Lemieux decided that he played his last hockey game and was going to focus on his family. So Mario Lemieux takes over ownership of the Penguins. He is with his son all the time. And his son is about four years old. One day he's hanging out with the guy who sharpens the skates. And he asks the guy who's sharpening the skates, he says, who is that guy, number 66? And you can imagine the, the, the surprise of the guy who was sharpening skates, the, the son of the greatest hockey player of all time, had no clue that his dad ever played hockey. Now, I'm not saying I'm the Mario Lemieux preaching by any means, but what I am saying is it is a, it is a tremendous joy to have my son see this week what daddy used to do five years ago. And just to be able to see that the scriptures are, are still burning in my heart. And, and even though there have been many setbacks and challenges and things that I need to work through, I, I am just tremendously glad to be able to open this word and to be able to share it with you this morning. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to go into the, to the prayer. Hopefully you found Micah. It's a hard little book to find. It's one of the minor prophets tucked away. And so I, I wanted to, that story, hopefully you found it. And we're going to dig right in. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I, I thank you for these people who have come this morning. I thank you for your saints, for the remnant that you have chosen, that you have justified. And God, I thank you that you are working in us and the promise that he who began a good work in us will finish it. God, I'm thankful for the opportunity to open your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would give me clarity of thought in speech, that, Lord, you would get me out of the way, and, Father, that your words would reign supreme. I pray, God, that we would sense this morning conviction. I pray, God, that I will do my job to seek it out, 
to allow your word to have its full effect. That we would not minimize our sin, but that we would own it, embrace it. And God, in the greatness of our sin, I pray, God, that you would show us the greatness of the cross and what your son accomplished for us. And Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Micah chapter number seven. We're going to get right to work. I told my friend James yesterday we met to go over my sermon, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm shooting for 30 minutes, and he hackled like a hyena. <laughs> so I've never, he said, you've never preached 30 minutes in your life. So I'm, I'm going to do my best. It's 11 or 9. We'll see where we get. We've got a lot of work to do, so let's go. Micah chapter number seven, verse number one. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, and when the gate grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly, they have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge, they ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment is come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and until he executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? We're going to begin in verse number one. This is a phrase that isn't very common in our day. It's a phrase that's very difficult for translators to translate into the English vernacular. And it's, it's woe is me. We don't really have a phrase that really encompasses and embodies the fullness of that expression in the Hebrew. But we get the idea. And, and one commentator that I read said something very interesting. He said, if you go back and you read the Psalms, the song that is played most by David's harp resembles a hearse tune more than it does a joyful melody. And so as you look back at the Psalms and the music that David produces, there's a lot of sorrow and a lot of brokenness and a lot of anguish. And so the prophet begins, woe is me. Now the context of Micah is very interesting. If you get a chance, I would invite you to study it out. But Micah was a prophet, although he doesn't call himself a prophet, he's recognized as one. And he began his ministry about 700 years before Christ. And so as you look at the book of Micah, uh, there's a couple of chapter divisions. It's really broken up into three different sections. Uh, each section begins with a plea, hear ye. And so Micah the prophet begins with, hear ye. And then he expounds on the brokenness of the nation of Israel and the brokenness of the northern and the southern tribes. And, and so 
in these different chapter divisions, we see two main themes that run throughout the book of Micah. And if you, I had you turn to seven, we're going to bounce around a little bit. Turn to Micah 4.10, just one page over, maybe two. I want you to see, this is the thrust of Micah's ministry. This is the message of the prophet Micah. Verse number 10, he says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. The two main themes in the book of Micah that we see recurring in each of these three sections is first a message of judgment on, on God's people, the house of Israel. And so this message of judgment is that God is going to come and he's going to punish them for their sin and their iniquity and their transgressions. But, you know, I found that in my ministry and in my talking with people, I usually, unlike the prophet, I, I oftentimes am very one-sided in my message. So I'm very good at the judgment side. And I'm thankful that in the book of Micah, Micah doesn't stop just with judgment, but he balances great judgment with great hope. And so that's the recurring theme of the book is the judgment of God is on his people, but they will not remain in judgment. There is a hope that God will deliver his people once again out of their transgressions and out of their iniquity. I think it's worth noting here that in my own life, as I share the gospel, as we preach and as we prepare messages as a church, it's very, very important that we have both sides of that coin, that we preach the judgment of God. People, we've gotten soft in America on the judgment of God. We don't talk about that there is a punishment for those who are not in Christ. We don't like to talk about hell. Hell is a bad word. And so our churches have all but removed any, any teachings of the judgment of God. But the reason we feel so inclined to remove the judgment is we've not done a great job in teaching of the mercy of God and the treasure that is Jesus and what he has done on our behalf and that we can have that judgment eradicated by Jesus Christ. And so you've got to have both sides of the, the coin. And so I would just encourage you as you share the gospel, make sure you have both. Make sure you talk about the condemnation that those who are outside of Christ are under, but then also the great hope of Jesus. Don't leave people in their sins. I'm thankful for the example of Micah, who in three different sections says, Hear ye, and proclaims the sadness of the presence, of the abundance of evil in his day and time, but then also proclaims the greatness and the magnificence that is Jesus Christ. Back to Micah 7. Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned and there is no cluster to eat. I don't know about you. I'm not exactly farmer material. <laughs> um, I still think it's way cheaper to buy 38 cent green beans at the store. Um, my mom likes to farm and I worry about her mental health sometimes. But, they, you know, they, most of the, the nation of Israel is a very agricultural um, community. And so they're very familiar with this illustration. It kind of loses a little bit on me. So I want to explain it. What, what he is saying when he says, I've become as when the southern summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned and there's no cluster to eat. He's referring back, do you remember in the story of Ruth, where the farmers would, they would go and they would take the first fruits 
but the Lord did not permit them to go back a second time to gather what they missed. They left them intentionally that the poor would come into their fields and they would gather what was left over. And so in the book of Ruth, you remember Ruth was gleaning in Boaz's field. And so that's exactly, that was their kind of um, their welfare system of the day. As I was thinking last night about what this must be like, is he's describing that a poor person would go into the field and realize that they were too late. So everybody had gotten there before them. There was nothing else to be eaten. So poor person goes into the field. All the grapes are gone. All the figs are gone. Nothing left. And now I'm left hungry. So I thought, what would that be like in today's time? And I think I know. So imagine this. I want you to imagine this scenario with me. You have the worst sweet sweet tooth craving of your life. It's 11 o'clock at night. You go to the cupboard and they're bare. There's nothing there. But you remember, McDonald's is open. I love McDonald's. And McDonald's, most of them are open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So 11 o'clock, you've got this raging sweet tooth and you need something sweet. You need it now. You get into your car and you drive, for me, to the South Fairmont McDonald's. And you pull up and you put your order in. I would like a hot fudge sundae. And you know what? I don't want just hot fudge. Give me caramel. And anything else sweet, you've got, dump it on top. And they reply with this. We're sorry, sir, our ice cream machine is now. <laughs> what? No! Like, there's nowhere else. You are my last hope. And we, I get that all the time. I don't know. Does that happen here in Bridgeport? Like, why do you even have ice cream? And that's the only thing that I can think of. I mean, that's the desperation we're talking about. You get to the field, you're set, you're so hungry, and you go out there, and there's nothing there. It's all gone. You're too late. I think you should move down. Now, the question that we have to answer is, what is this fruit? What is it that the prophet Micah is looking for that he longs to taste, only to realize that it's unavailable or it's off the menu? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, look at verse number two. What is this first ripe fig that his soul desires? It's not an ice cream from McDonald's. It's not even a fig. It's not grapes. He says it's the godly that have perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. There are two things that the prophet is looking for that he longs to have that his soul needs. And that is people who are loyal to God. And people who are honest. So we go from a light-hearted feeling of not having our hunger satisfied to realizing the despair as the prophet looks out and realizes that there is no fruit. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who is loyal to God. There is no one who is honest and upright. And he says as much in the very last part that among mankind there is not one. Who is upright. It reminds me of the time where God was going to destroy um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, righteous Lot kept begging God to save them. And, and so he keeps going down in his number. What if there's like a hundred there? Will you do it then? There's not a hundred. But what about 50? Well, there's not 50. What about 25? And we keep thinking that there are righteous among us. There's got to be somebody who is godly and honest. And the prophet Micah says, among the land, there is none. Now, different translations translate this differently. So I want to explain these two words because 
they're a little bit different maybe in your translation, but it's the word first off, the godly. What does it mean to be godly? This was really interesting. Turn to Micah 6.18. Probably the only verse you know in the book of Micah. Micah 6.18. What does it mean to be godly? In the original language, it, it has an idea of constant love. Constant love for God and for the things of God. And Micah 6.18 answers exactly what that looks like. It means to be always doing what God wants when he wants. So I ask this because I really struggle with this at times in my life. What is it exactly that God wants from me? Does God want me to pack up and become a missionary and go overseas? Is it that God wants me to be poor my whole life? I've been, you know, my wife and I right now are, are planning on building a house. And so sometimes I wrestle with that. And like, does God even want me to have a house? Does God just want me to be, you know, poor and, and on the street? You know, it's sometimes we get these crazy ideas of what God wants from me. But Micah 6.18 answers exactly what it means to be godly. And he says this. Well, did you have trouble finding 618? Because I had trouble finding 618. I got a faulty Bible, apparently. They forgot a page. So let me see here. It's not 618. It is Micah 68. I added an extra one there. So Micah 6.8, that is in the Bible. We were about to go extra biblical there. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. <laughs> Why is that hard for me? What, I mean, is that really that overbearing? I mean, is that that ridiculous of a request that God asked these three things of me? That I would do what? That I would walk humbly with him? That I would work towards judge or work towards justice. I mean, it's crazy to think that we struggle so much with those things. To do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now here's where that word comes back. Your translation says love kindness. But the idea there in the original languages is this idea of constant love. So it's that God wants us to be constant in our affection and our love for him. And so Micah says that this fruit that he longs for is that there would be a people who are loyal to God, a people that have constant love for him, that their hearts are ever burning for the things of God. And the things of God, what are they? But that we would do justly and that we would walk humbly with him and that we would love constantly. That is the fruit that Micah longs to eat. That is the fruit that is nowhere to be found. The second part of that, uprightness. Uprightness refers to honesty, integrity, that we not only love God with a constant love, but we do the things that God wants us to do. We're not just hearers, but we're doers of the word. And Micah says, among the land there is nobody left who does those things. So the question is begged. Does Micah just mean the nation of Israel, the land, or does he mean all of mankind? 
I would say this. I think we already know the answer. If you take the whole of Scripture and you interpret the Bible with the Bible, we know that that is true of every corner of the earth. That there is none righteous, no, not one, and that all have said and fallen short of the glory of God. Micah laments in his brokenness that there is nobody left. Our hearts are deceitful, our will enslaved, and our affections perverted. The prophet continues in his brokenness by saying in verse number two, the godly has perished from the earth. Seems as though everybody who was good is gone. There is no one upright among mankind, and that they all lie in wait for blood. Essentially, he's saying everybody is looking for the opportunity to murder. And each hunts the other with a net. I didn't quite understand that. It's like, how do you kill somebody with a net? I, I mean, that would be. But the idea is that they are looking to capitalize on the opportunity to do their neighbor harm in order to do their own self well. And so he says that everybody, if given the opportunity, will do wrong to those around him in order that he might flourish. They are experts at evil. And so that's the condition of mankind. But then what he does from here is he, he kind of works from outward inward. And so the circle begins to shrink. And so now he's going to talk about the very systems of justice put into place through government and other God-ordained means. What about those who are charged with doing right? He says in verse number 3, Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man or influential man, the rich man, utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. So they're conspiring and manipulating and plotting and planning and abusing power, and so there's corruption everywhere. There's corruption about every facet of mankind. There is corruption even within the very institutions that were meant to promote justice. And so as we begin to shrink that circle, we say, where can a man go when he is brokenhearted? Where can a man go when he is hurting? Surely the only place that he can go is to his neighbor, to his family, and to his friends. Micah begins to shrink that circle even further, and he says in verse number four, the best of them, the very best of what humanity has to offer is like a briar. I told you, I'm not a farmer, I don't know what a briar is, but what he's saying is, even the very best of people are like weeds. So that's, uh, that's familiar, right? You've heard that before. Maybe you've heard his contemporary prophet Isaiah say it this way, even our very best works are as filthy rags. So here's a new one for you. You can say, even the best attempts of man, they're like weeds in the sight of God. But what about his friends and what about family? So we've seen a broken community, and now I want to show you a broken family. So he says in verse number five, put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. So Mike is saying you can't trust your friends, your associates, the people that you normally run to when you're hurting and you're broken, that you can't even trust them in this particular day and age, in this day of Micah. 
He says the reasons why is he says you have to actually guard the doors of your mouth. In other words, keep secrets from your spouse. Don't tell them the things of your heart because you can't even trust the one who lies with you. And the idea here is the one that you are intimate with, your spouse, the one who has seen your nakedness. You can't even trust them. He gives us three specific examples here of why that is. He goes first for the son. He says the son treats the father with contempt. Each of these three words, contempt and rising up against, has the idea of disrespect. So he says the sons treat the fathers with great disrespect. The daughters rise up against the mother. So that seems really balanced. Son or daughter, you can only have one or the other. So he hits both. So sons are treating their fathers with contempt. Daughters are treating their mothers with disrespect. But then there's somebody that's going to get picked on today. What's the next one? This doesn't seem quite fair, does it? The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. But what about the son and the son-in-law, or father-in-law? Why do we, why is there no mention of that in the scriptures? Why do we pick on the daughter-in-laws? Well, in that day and time, it was typical that the wife would go with her husband, and the husband's family would build on in order to accommodate the new family and the growth of their family. So that's why. you Most sons and sons, uh, father-in-laws didn't have a lot of interaction in that culture. It was primarily the mother and the mother-in-law who had the interaction. Now, I can relate because we live in my mom and dad's basement, which is really hard to say, um, especially when I picked on a lot of guys my age who did that. Usually you think of them as gamers in their parents' basement with no job. I do have a job. We'll get there as to why I live in my parents' basement. But I can understand this arrangement maybe a little bit better than most. And so all three of these Head at disrespect. And so the interesting verse here is verse number seven. Or verse number, the end of verse number six, though. He says, A man's enemies are the men of his own house. You've heard that before. Go to Matthew 10. Matthew chapter number 10. You've heard it from none other than Jesus himself. Matthew 10. So Jesus is talking about his ministry. And and he says in verse number 34 of Matthew 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. A direct quote of Micah chapter number 7. So why does Jesus feel it necessary to quote Micah 7 in his current ministry in, in the Bible, in the New Testament? And the reason is, I think there, it is to make sure that we understand that this is not an atypical situation in Micah 7. This is not something that's unique to man. This wasn't just a particularly bad period in the history of mankind. He quotes it to say that this very thing that Micah was talking about in his day in 750 B.C. is the same thing that's happening in our day in AD 30. It's the same thing that's happening today in 2017. Does it sound all that familiar or unfamiliar to you? 
that the daughter would rise up against the mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, son against the father, that you can't trust anybody, there's corruption everywhere, the government's corrupt, everybody's power-hungry, everybody's out for themselves. If they have the opportunity to do you in, they're going to do it in order to advance their own agenda. Nothing like today, right? Not at all. And so Jesus quotes it to show that this is exactly what is happening today. And this is exactly the situation that we find ourselves surrounded by. But then it gets even darker. So for a long time, I would stop there. And I would look at all of the wickedness, the pervasive evil around me. And I would preach against it, rail against it, without ever looking in here. Look at the very next verse in verse number 7. But as for me, Micah, Micah goes here from being kind of the representative, the mouthpiece, to speaking personally. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I, Micah, will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause. Micah paints a horrific picture of the evil and injustice of his day, but then stops to realize that that evilness is indwelling in him, that it is present in his own heart, in his own ministry. Why was there such a hiatus between 2012 and today? Well, I'll tell you. It's because I realized that there was a lot of darkness in my own heart. I realized that I was an expert at picking it out of everybody else and not myself. When I was a teenager, a zitty teenager, all kinds of temples, I remember that my pattern in the morning is I would go into the bathroom and I would get ready. But before I did, the very first thing I did was shut off the light. I'd turn the light off, I'd get ready in the dark, that way I didn't have to see my complexion, because I was just that self-conscious and, and didn't want to see my, my image, that way it wouldn't ruin my day. So I'd get dressed, brush my teeth, do everything in the dark. Very weird, but that's what happened. Teenagers are weird, if you didn't already know that. But I got to thinking about that, and I said, you know, that's largely what I've done in my life is I have been hesitant to open up the scriptures. I've been hesitant to read the Bible because it exposes the blemishes and exposes the imperfections of my heart. And it shows that this pervasive wickedness is not outside our walls, but it is penetrated, it has infiltrated our own hearts. And so what I would do with the Bible is the same thing I would do with the light. When it started to hurt, when it started to convict, I'd shut it off and put it away. Because I didn't know what to do with the conviction. I didn't know what to do with the failures and the shortcomings. I knew I wasn't godly. I knew I wasn't honest. I knew that every day I disappointed the Lord. And I would just shut it up. I'd turn off the light. I don't know about you, but maybe you're in the same boat this morning. The reality is, is that there are two types of people who are here today. There are people who do not know the Lord, who have never understood and have never put their faith and trust in the justification that Jesus offered on the cross. They don't believe that he is the son of God, that lived the life that we could not live, who died the death that we should have died, who in his 
propitiation on the cross, that his righteousness was imputed to my account, and my sin was imputed to his account, that he satisfied the wrath of God forever. If that's you this morning, you need these next couple verses. You need to see what God has done on our behalf. But then there's somebody else here, someone like me in 2012, somebody who knows the love and the mercy and the grace of God, but has forgotten, as Peter says, that they were purged from their sins. That they've forgotten that the way that we were saved was not by works of our own, but by Jesus and his work on the cross. And so you're here today and you're living under that weight of moral failure, realizing that you are neither godly nor honest, and now you say, what do I do? I can tell you the first thing, don't shut the book. Don't shut it. Don't put it up. Don't leave it on the coffee table. Open it up. Don't be afraid of it. Because the more you realize your own sinfulness and the more you walk through Micah 7 and realize how corruption and how iniquity has just infiltrated and ruined all of God's creation, the greater the cross will become in your life. The greater the work of Jesus will become. You will see that his hand is not short, that he can save the vilest of people. And that he delights in doing so. That the Son of Man came to seek that which was lost. For years and years and years, I would shut the book. I didn't know how to deal with my own failures. And then what I would do is when somebody brought a failure to me, I would do my best to defend myself. Some of you are expert attorneys. Nobody can pay. You're like Teflon. Nothing sticks. I'll find a way to, it used to frustrate my wife, and I knew that I could do it. I was great with arguments, and I could make whatever you say, say the opposite of what you wish it said. And I would twist and manipulate and plot and plan, and I was good at it. And then what I realized was that not only was going on in my mouth, but it was going on in my heart. I thought I was just this really great person. I thought I was honestly like the best husband you could ever have. Because I just had all these ideas that I want to be like the husband that nobody is. I, I want to cook for my wife, and I want to I want to be there for her. And, and, you know, kind of an emotional guy. This don't really exist. You usually get the top. I want to be top and tender. And I thought, man, I'm going to rock marriage. Well, let me tell you, marriage rocked me. And the reason it rocked me is because I realized that all those good things that I was doing for my spouse really was out of a wicked heart. I didn't do them out of love. I didn't get up and preach and serve and and do things because I just loved Jesus and my heart was right. I was a manipulative little boy. I did them because I wanted something from that person. So when I got married, I wanted to be the greatest husband so that my wife would bow down and say, I have the greatest husband to everybody else. I wanted worship. I got up and I preached and I preached sermons. And the reason that I preached now, I will tell you this. A lot of this came from reads the work of the scripture in my heart. I was duped. I didn't realize at the time that I was doing this. This is five years later. I'm looking at it and saying, I think this really was my heart. I was getting up and doing things for the Lord because I needed the acceptance and approval and love of his people. But let me tell you. 
I don't need your love and I don't need your acceptance because everything I need is satisfied by Jesus Christ. And he's at the right hand of God making intercession for me this morning. I don't need that anymore. Now, if I can live that way, I, I say it and I believe it. But it's a difficult balance. It's a difficult thing to live. I look back at 2012 and I see that so much of what I did was that I wanted worship. I wanted to build my kingdom, not Jesus's. So I'm thankful to have that opportunity. I don't know, maybe that's just me this morning. I have a, a hunch that it's not. I think Micah made that pretty clear, that it's a universal experience, that all of us have wicked, deceptive hearts. All of our wills have been enslaved, and all of our affections are perverted. So here's the, here's the thrust of the message. This is, so that was judgment. So now we're going to move. We're going to go away from judgment. Here's the mercy and the grace. And this is my favorite part. So the title of today's message is Gutsy Guilt. What do I do as a Christian like myself in 2012, like you today in 2017, like Micah in 750 B.C.? What do I do as a Christian who knows the truth but has committed moral failure, who realizes that he is neither godly nor honest. Micah gives us a tremendous example, and I want you to see it this morning. Verse number eight, gutsy guilt. We're usually good with one. We're good with being gutsy. We're good with courage. We're good with boldness. But a lot of times it lacks depth because we're really bad at being brokenhearted. We're really bad at, at being contrite, we're bad at experiencing guilt. Micah says in verse number 8, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. There are, is a, gathered an assembly of people against Micah who are pointing out, who are accusing him, who are letting him know just how rotten and terrible of a human being he is. And he looks at them with gutsy guilt, with courageous contrition. And he says, don't you dare rejoice over me. Don't think that it's over. Because even though I have fallen, even though I have sinned against God, I will rise again. Now that would make a great verse on a coffee cup. But it would be horrifically taken out of context. Why? Well, what does it's important to note what Micah doesn't say. He doesn't say that he will do this work. It's important to note that in a number of instances in this passage, he says that it is God who will do the work on his behalf. He says in verse number nine, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause, until he executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then the enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me. Where is the Lord your God? Christian, when you are caught in sin and when you are neither godly nor upright and you are tempted to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, can I tell you that righteousness is not anything that we can produce in and of ourselves? You do not have the means to satisfy God's wrath. You do not even have the currency. I had a Romans teacher who used to tell me this. He'd say that the currency of heaven is righteousness. 
and all you have in your pocket is monopoly money, and what is needed is real currency. Could you imagine going to Walmart and trying to pay for something with 20 bucks in monopoly money? That cashier would look like you look at you like you had two heads. They'd probably seen it before though. But how many of us try to obtain a righteousness of our own doing? We feel that we're good people because of our job that we have. You know, I do good work at my job. I work for a charitable organization. We take care of a lot of mission residents. Man, that's why God's going to let me in heaven, because I do good things here. I don't work for some big company or corporation. Some of you find it in your intellectual achievements, your academia. I was a great student. I got straight A's. And so, you know, I find my worth and value and my acceptance and my intelligence. Some of you, it's in your identity as a provider for your family. I'm the man. I make the money. Uh, My wife is well taken care of. My kids are taken care of. We have a nice house, nice cars. The truth is, the heart is an idle factory. And you will find a thousand Hundreds of thousands of things to put your hope and trust in other than Jesus. And for the past five years, and yea, way longer than that, I have found everything. My soul has been a black hole that has latched onto anything that I thought could bring me peace and joy and satisfaction. And so this morning, as we look at Micah, Micah reminds us that the only person who can do that work, the only person responsible for salvation, is God and God alone. We have no part. Never in this passage does Micah say that he contributed a darn thing. What did Micah do? He says, well, I'll tell you what Micah did. Micah did this. He fell. Micah sat in darkness. Micah bared the indignation of the Lord. Micah sinned. Micah's cause was broken. Micah was in the darkness. And Micah was feeling the condemnation of those around him. That's what Micah did. That's what you and I do. That's what we bring to the table. I don't sin. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I said because I'm a sinner. That comes, I am an expert. Like Micah said, I'm an expert at evil. My best day is like a weed. I got nothing to bring. And so there's two things that I want you to do this morning, and we're going to wrap it up. First thing I want you to do is I want you to own it this morning. Own it. I don't know what it is. I'm sure we all have it, though. I'm sure as Christians on this side of eternity, there is something, some way that we have disappointed our Heavenly Father. Some way that we are under His disciplining hand like Micah was. Some way that we are lacking in our constant love or lacking in our integrity and honesty. Don't be afraid of it. Don't go to this book and allow the weight of your sin paralyze you. That's not the intent. The intent is that we would be convicted. The intent is that in our awareness of our own sin, in the darkness of our heart, it would lead us to worship with a greater intensity the God who brought us out of it. 
It should not lead you to close the book. We ought to go to the book with great expectancy that as God searches me, as the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. As we realize the gravity of our cosmic treason against God, we'd understand the mercy and love and compassion that he has for his children. One of my favorite moments in the movie The Karate Kid not the old one. The old one was really good, but the new one, I know, it wasn't as good. But this was one of my, Mr. Miyagi, who's portrayed by Jackie Chan in the movie, you'll remember the, the, the kid is just very disrespectful. Very disrespectful to his mom. Just kind of typical, you know, punk kid of our day and age. And he would come in every day, take off his coat, leave it right on the floor. Just in a pile. Bam. That's where he goes. Mom would come pick it up and tell him, please pick up your coat. So this kid decides that he wants to learn karate. He goes to Mr. Miyagi. And the first thing Mr. Miyagi does, because he saw this kid leave his jacket and keep on the floor, is he tells him to pick it up and put it on the coat hanger. Pick it up and put it on the coat hanger. Pick it up, put it on the coat hanger. Days and days. And all Mr. Miyagi says is, again, 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 again. And I think that... Mr. Miyagi reminds me a lot of how the Lord gives us opportunities every day and says again and again and again. Opportunities for us to put off trusting in our own flesh and trusting in what he has done on the cross. This week, you'll have another opportunity and you'll be presented with the same dilemma. Do I shut the book? Do I turn off the light or do I go to it? Do I own my sin? Do I look in the mirror and do I realize all of my imperfections, but not be crushed by them, not be paralyzed, but then go to the cross and realize that each and every one of them was paid for and satisfied by the work of Jesus Christ? Own your sin and own your discipline. These past five years have not been easy. Mark Driscoll, a pastor that I listened to a lot in years past, used to say this, God has two plans for your life. The first one is humility. The second one is humiliation. So you can either be humble or you can be humiliated. And I can tell you that God's disciplining hand can be very humbling. I have watched not one, but two ministries suffer. I have watched my wife and my family suffer from my sin. I have watched time and time again, people in the name of Jesus drug through the mud by my wicked heart. You can choose humility or you can choose humiliation. But I can tell you this this morning. I wouldn't trade any of that for anything in the world. Living in my mom and dad's basement. Selling our house in Grafton. Struggling in my marriage with my spouse. Struggling to be a parent. Struggling as a, as a church planner. Struggling in every aspect of my life. Has led to me realizing that I've got nothing to bring to the table. That every act, everything that I do is wholly dependent on God and His grace. 
So I would say two things. Own your sin this morning. Own your discipline. You are disciplined by a God who does not discipline you to punish you. That punishment was taken by Jesus on the cross. His discipline is for our joy. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various temptations and trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have its perfect work. There's a phrase that I've said time and time again in thinking about re-entering the pulpit, and that is, I don't want to shortchange my sanctification. I don't want to shut the book. I don't want to close my ears to what God's trying to tell me. Why? Look at the very end of Micah, and we're done. Micah, we read what Jeremy read this morning, verse number 18. This is my hope for you this morning. This is my hope for me this morning. This is my hope for our community. Micah says, in an outburst of worship, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnants of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread out iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And he will show faithfulness to Jacob. There's that word. Constant love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. It ought to lead us to worship. The Father seeks true worshipers. This morning, the truth that Jesus did for us, what we could not do for ourselves, ought to lead us to worship. These walls should not contain our worship. Micah, playing off of his name, which means, who is a God like Jehovah? says, who is a God like you? Who is a God that would love a worm like I? Who is a God that is mindful of man? After everything that I've done and all my shortcomings and my lack of constant love, I am thankful that Jesus had the love that I cannot produce. His love has never waned. His love has always been faithful and true. Jesus has done what I could not do, and he paid the death that I should have paid. And this morning, if you are here and you're under the weight of your sin and iniquity, I hope and I pray that as the band comes up, your hearts will just, the, the room cannot contain the praise that comes out. That like Micah, you will just have an outburst of praise. It's okay to say amen in here. It's okay to clap if you want. It's okay to get a little bit excited. We get excited about Mountaineer football. Let's get excited about Jesus Christ for a change. If you came in under the weight of condemnation, if you are a child of God, there's no condemnation. Get excited. It's okay. Nobody will tell it's safe here. Just somebody worship Jesus and what he has done. Imagine this. What if our church got a hold of these truths today? What if you got a hold of these truths? What if you stopped shutting the book and you kept it open and you went to it day after day to see your sin, to own your sin, own your discipline, and in doing so, your understanding of the cross grew infinitely larger. What would your life look like? I bet your marriage would be better. I bet your parenting would be better. I bet your relationships would be better. And you know what? Northview would be better. Our communities would be changed. But our communities stay unchanged because we keep